I'm Sandra, and I'm just the professional your small business was looking for. But you didn't hire me because you didn't use LinkedIn jobs. LinkedIn has professionals you can't find anywhere else, including those who aren't actively looking for a new job, but might be open to the perfect role, like me. In a given month, over 70% of LinkedIn users don't visit other leading job sites. So if you're not looking on LinkedIn, you'll miss out on great candidates like Sandra. Start hiring professionals like a professional. Post your free job on linkedin.com slash people today. Hey, I'm Ryan Reynolds. Recently, I asked Mint Mobile's legal team if big wireless companies are allowed to raise prices due to inflation. They said yes. And then when I asked if raising prices technically violates those onerous two-year contracts, they said, what the f*** are you talking about, you insane Hollywood ass. So to recap, we're cutting the price of Mint Unlimited from $30 a month to just $15 a month. Give it a try at mintmobile.com slash switch. $45 up front for three months plus taxes and fees. Promote for new customers for limited time. Unlimited more than 40 gigabytes per month. Slows full terms at mintmobile.com. Hey, it's Ryan Reynolds, and I'm here with Keith, co-star of my upcoming film, If, only in theaters May 17th. Do you want to tell people the big news... All right, I'll do. It. Sign up now and you'll get unlimited for $15 a month in six months of Paramount Plus Essential Plan on us. Mintmobile.com slash switch. Upfront payment of $45 equivalent to $15 per month. Unlimited over 40 gigabytes per month. Face lower speeds. Videos at 480p. Active Mint customers by 531.24 get six months of Paramount Plus Essential Plan. Auto renews after six months. Offer ends May 31st, 2024. Separate Paramount Plus registration required. Terms and conditions apply if rated PG. I can't believe the First Minister is standing here defending Scottish education in the week that the results have shown standards to be at their worst ever level. And he has quoted what the Scottish Conservatives have said in the past about curriculum for excellence. But what he hasn't quoted is the problems with the implementation, which is on the SNP's watch. That's why Dr Keir Bloomer said the disastrous implementation of curriculum for excellence is the problem, and that lays at the hands of the SNP. Hello and welcome to Hollywood Sources. We're recording on Wednesday the 13th of December. I'm Callum MacDonald. Also here, Jeff Aberdeen, former Chief of Staff to Alex Salmond. Hello, Jeff. Good morning. And Andy McKeever, who was the Director of Communications for the Scottish Conservatives. Hello, Andy. Was. The was is very important, given our guest today. We don't want him thinking anything different is going on. Huh? <laughs> yeah, absolutely. I'm sure, he's, I'm sure he's heard your message and he's run miles and miles away from it. Um, the, <laughs> the leader of the Scottish Conservatives, MP and MSP, Douglas Ross, joins us. Hello, Douglas. Hello, Cal. Good to join you all. How are you? I'm good. Yeah, I'm it's good. great it's, to have uh, you. It's great to have you. Busy time in politics, lots going on, so I'm sure we'll have plenty to chat about. Yeah, I was going to say, in normal jobs, at this sort of middle of December point, people start winding down for Christmas, but um, it feels like that is impossible in your line of work, particularly right now. Uh, Well, well, I would say over Christmas, it definitely gets quieter. I always think that Christmas to New Year period is the one point where people think there's no point, you know, contacting their MP, MSP, unless it's really urgent. Obviously, Falkirk had a big spike last year over Christmas, New Year period, that they they did need to contact their MSP uh, a lot. But, uh, no, I'm looking forward to... So Westminster finishes next Tuesday. Holyrood, we've obviously got a big day with the budget next Tuesday. FMQ's next Thursday, and then away up the road for the, the final time of the year. Nice. That's good. Yeah. 
Can I just say, Callum, just on that point, um, uh, I remember when, you know, being a special advisor and chief of staff that, um, and this is for viewers or listeners who might not actually know this, but a lot of the media over the Christmas period is embargoed press releases. So everyone goes around with their Christmas stories and New Year stories. And so everything's in the can. The interviews are done and all the rest of it. It's the one time that you could actually get a little bit of respite and a bit of a break. Um, uh, politicians, advisors, and some civil servants alike. And they do deserve a break, I have to say, because uh, everyone is prone <laughs> to getting knackered now and then. So it's I, I used to love Christmas period when I was in... I'm uh, not sure your public. successors in your uh, Scottish Government SNP job will get as much of a break as you used to get during the Christmas period, <laughs> Geoffrey. <laughs> Uh, yeah, it's a lack. Of, I mean, they're just not as professional and as uh, effective. Uh, Douglas, one of the one of the sort of pre-Christmas flashpoint, of course, has been this uh, Rwanda bill uh, and the vote on it, which was last night in the House of Commons. Rishi Sunak has kind of seen off a Tory rebellion, and I'm going to add for now on that. Um, there was a majority of 44. I'm quite intrigued for your take on this because I think our listeners, particularly, will be interested to try to find out. What this Rwanda bill means for Scotland? Why? Why should? Why should people in Scotland care about this Rwanda bill and the idea of sending asylum seekers to Rwanda? Why is that a good thing for people in Scotland? Well, I think overall we want to deter people making a dangerous crossing. We've seen far too many lives put at risk uh, and lives lost, vulnerable people making that cross crossing uh, across the channel. Uh, And as I've said, my reason for supporting the bill is to deter those crossings and to stop illegal human traffickers from benefiting financially from it. In the wider issues, if people come here, there are significant uh, periods for these asylum claims to be uh, investigated and and scrutinised. They have to be housed in hotels. And for example, in my Murray constituency, the Eight Acres Hotel is now uh, an asylum hotel. So it does impact us up here in Scotland. One, I think all of us should be trying to deter those illegal crossings, uh, but also, you know, they are uh, in our communities, in our hotels, and that, uh, in many cases, uh, raises concerns about hotels being taken out of use, uh, and a whole host of other things that I know as a local constituency MSP, MP uh, here in Scotland that does impact people that I represent. Mm. It's interesting because Matthew Rycroft, who's the Permanent Secretary at the Home Office, suggests and has suggested a couple of times actually that he's not, he's not sure there's any evidence that it, that it is a deterrent. Well, other countries have obviously looked to do uh, something similar to this and it is to act as a deterrent. Um, I think we have seen, uh, as the Prime Minister has said, it's the strongest uh, immigration uh, policy that's been brought before Parliament. Obviously, uh, there was uh, a lot of division over the week uh, for that coming, but all Conservatives either voted for it and certainly didn't vote against it. There was a a chunk of colleagues who didn't support it at second reading, uh, but the opposition parties, SNP, Liberal Democrats, Labour, uh, all opposed it, and I'm not sure what their plans are to stop people making these dangerous crossings. No one can doubt there are too many people crossing uh, this uh, channel in illegal ways, in very dangerous ways, uh, and we see uh, the impact that has on people's lives, losing their lives. Has it been a particularly strange week, Douglas? I mean, we, we've talked a lot in the, you know, on Times Radio where I work and in the papers and everywhere about the factions in the Tory party and the difficulty and that Rishi Sunak's had sort of corralling all these different opinions. What is that like when you're in the thick of that and there are people kind of pulling the party in multiple different or trying to pull the party in multiple different directions? 
Yeah, I, I don't think it's helpful. I think uh, the best thing we can do is unite behind the, the Prime Minister's plan to seek to get this legislation through. It's going to come to a committee of the whole House now, so I expect January, February time is going to be very challenging for everyone involved to try and get amendments that will uh, appease as many people as possible. But uh, I had the opportunity to have a quick word with the Prime Minister uh, after the votes last night. I was taking my Christmas card designed by Chloe Smith uh, in Bucky. Uh, to get a picture with the Prime Minister. And, you know, he'd just come through uh, a vote that, you know, many people were speculating he could lose. Uh, he'd come through it uh, with a decent majority, uh, but he was straight away thinking and discussing what comes next. There was no celebration or anything from the Prime Minister. He was just focused on the next steps, which is going to be over the next few weeks, working with colleagues across the House uh, to see what amendments will be in the Commons, send it down to the Lords and see what the peers do in the other place. Yeah, I think um, I think the real story there, Douglas, is that you are still confident that getting a picture with the prime minister maintains some value. I think that's a vote of confidence in Rishi Sunak. I hope I hope Chloe Smith appreciates it. And I also got one with the <laughs> Mr. Speaker who was keen to get his picture taken with all these Christmas cards as well. Oh, I'm sure he was. I'm sure he and was. I've still got. And I've still got thousands to sign, which is my biggest my biggest bugbear is politicians or anyone that puts an automatic pen, uh, an automatic signature on the Christmas card. I can think of nothing more insincere than getting yeah. a Christmas card from a politician who hasn't even bothered to sign it themselves. I tell you what, when, when, when she comes of age, Chloe Smith is voting for Douglas. I'm telling you that right now. Two mentions on the podcast in the space of two minutes. This is... This is an absolute winning strategy, no question about <laughs> Andy, that. Andy, what, what is the story of the week here, Andy, on Rwanda? I think the story of the week is the Tory party talking to itself, largely, to be honest with you. Um, there's a there's a lot at play here, mm. obviously. The ironic thing about the focus that the Tory party has had this week is that on the issue of small boats, the government's actually started to do quite well. It's actually doing OK on small boats through a series of deals with other countries, including Albania and so on, it's actually getting better. But because there is, um, I suppose, political advantage, uh, or at least there is no impetus to properly distinguish between refugees and asylum seekers and economic migration, these things often become part of the same argument. So we, we then talk about the net migration statistics as though it's the same issue as Rwanda, which actually is not. They're actually quite different issues. Um, the most important thing, I think, though, and we'll maybe come on to the impact on Scotland because it's quite unique as well, I think, but I think the most important thing to bear in mind is that there are too many people in the party, um, and just for clarity, I absolutely don't think Douglas is one of these people, but there are too many people in the party who think that immigration, and specifically small boats, is the issue. It isn't. It's not. Um, it is a big issue for a relatively, uh, you know, it's, it's a reasonably reasonable sized issue for most people. It's a very big issue for a relatively small cohort of people who are probably not, almost certainly not going to decide the election. This election is going to be about the economy. Every single piece of polling will tell you that that is much more important to people than the immigration or indeed the small boats issue. So I think, unfortunately, um, for the government and for the Conservative Party, I think this is a, an example of a group of people, a group of MPs inside the party who just aren't paying enough attention to what's going on outside. And the fact that for the vast majority of people, this is a cost of living election. It is not an immigration election. 
Well, I agree. It always comes back to the economy. I think that's crucial. You know, we see that not just in our own elections here in Scotland, across the UK, but around the world. Um, it's why in the summer I, I launched a paper grasping the thistle that, that focused on Scotland's economy, our sluggish economy, what we can do to improve that. So I think this next election will rightly be about how people uh, feel about the economy, their jobs, the health service, education. Um, but this is also an issue that the Prime Minister made one of his five pledges uh, and he's brought forward legislation uh, that he feels can help us as a country uh, get the illegal crossings uh, down. Uh, and that is important to a lot of people. But I think in terms of priority, it will ultimately be, uh, and rightly so, the economy, health, education, etc. Do you think the difficulties of this week, Douglas, say more about Rishi Sunak's authority or the Conservative Party's chaos and mess? Well, look, the Prime Minister won the vote. He won it fairly comfortably, given the predictions there were uh, earlier on in the week, earlier on yesterday. Um, indeed, when we went into uh, the chamber after the votes last night, people were looking to see which side of the table the tellers were on. There were people that still thought the government may lose, and, and if Labour were uh, on the... Uh, the right-hand side looking down the chamber on the Speaker's left, and they would have uh, defeated the government. So um, I think the Prime Minister, and as I say, the, the brief conversation I had with him last night, uh, is now focused. That's one issue that's been uh, agreed, stage two, uh, second reading, uh, and now we go on to what will be you know, a challenging period as, as various amendments come from across the House. So then, we come to today's polling which shows that Rishi Sunak is now as unpopular as Boris Johnson was when he resigned as Prime Minister. 70% of people say they have an unfavourable opinion of Rishi Sunak. 21% have a favourable opinion. The polling's from YouGov. It was carried out before last night's vote on the Rwanda bill. Jeff, I might actually come to you first on that. What, what, do, you, what do you make of that polling and, um, and what that says about Rishi Sunak and where he is right now? Well, it says Rishi Sunak's leading a government that's been in power for some considerable time, uh, that we've changed course a number of times within that. I think there's five prime ministers in the last seven years. Um, there seems to be a lack of coherence, a lack of uh, particular strategic uh, impetus behind the government. I think in fairness to Rishi, um, he's tried to re-establish some of that uh, uh, following the chaotic, let's not make any bones about it, chaotic and sometimes shambolic tenureship of Boris Johnson. But he's fighting an uphill battle uh, uh, because of that. Now, I just want to go back to one quick point before I pose a question to, to Douglas. You know, uh, the Rwanda policy to me is inherently abhorrent. I don't like it. I don't want to get into the bones of all that. I've made my case before in, in previous podcasts. But the way that Douglas just described it, was a lot more reasonable than his counterparts down south. And that is clearly, presumably, for a reason, that the Conservative Party HQ focus group this to death, and they think that there is a, a vote winner in there because there is uh, more of an issue in the terms of uh, people's proximity to it in England uh, and, and, and perhaps much more likely to gain traction with people there than there is in Scotland. And this comes to my more larger kind of point that I want to put to Douglas. You know, uh, Douglas, you had to uh, sometimes criticise Boris Johnson. You sometimes had to uh, support Boris Johnson. You couldn't win either way. You know, um, uh, one, if you support him, you're, uh, you're going along with this shambolic, chaotic government. If you criticise him, oh, well, the Tory party's splitting. You must be in your heart of hearts, if the polls are to be right, and I know you'll say we're we don't hypothesise on defeat, we hypothesise on success. 
But surely you're viewing the opportunity, if Labour take power, to really try and establish the Scottish party, some independent credentials from that of what's gone down south, because you don't have to defend what's going on at Westminster. Surely you're viewing that as an opportunity rather than a risk um, if the Tories lose power. Well, I was ready for that question, but I thought it would be from Andy, given uh, his uh, previous uh, on this issue. <laughs> but look, what I would say is, um, look at every party, there's going to be debate and discussion with the leadership. We're seeing it with the SNP at the moment. You know, Kate Forbes writing at the weekend that the Butte House Agreement should be... Uh, no, uh, well, she's mentioned that before, she wouldn't have continued it uh, she became First Minister, but she's now in a government that, that has that as its policy. She was telling her leadership that there shouldn't be an appeal on the GRR. I, I actually think it's healthy uh, at times that there is uh, an open and frank discussion uh, with the leadership. It's not always easy. You know, I, I find it at times, if you speak out, uh, there are those who are supporting the leader of the time that make it very difficult for you. But uh, parties in government and in opposition have the same issues. We've seen it, you know, I saw the questions you put to, to Jackie Bailey about the uh, ceasefire in Gaza and, and the Scottish Labour position and the UK Labour position. That will always happen. And I think we've got to be a bit adult and grown up about it, that that is healthy, that we can have that discussion within political parties. <laughs> I think that I, let me put a subtle difference on it, though. I think I mean I I worked for two of Douglas's predecessors, and I'm trying to think. I think there were two Scottish elections and one UK election I worked on, and it is. And this is not just a Tory problem, incidentally. This is a Labour problem as well. It's not as pronounced with Labour, but it is a Labour problem too. Um, in a Scottish election, you can pretty much plough your own furrow to a degree. Um, in a UK election, it's really, really, really difficult for uh, a leader of the Scottish Tory party to do their own thing in a UK election. Um, the 2005 election, ironically, actually was an election under Michael Howard, which was very focused on... Now, of course, they weren't the government, they were the opposition, but it was very focused on immigration. Um, and it was almost impossible for the Scottish Tory party to do anything else, to talk about anything else, because the narrative was a high-level air war from London. It was all over broadcast, it was all over the newspapers, and it was just really difficult for the Scottish party to do anything that was in any way distinct. I think that come 2026, Douglas can run a Scottish Conservative Party campaign. I don't think, Douglas, that you can run a Scottish Conservative Party campaign in 2024. I think the campaign is a Rishi Sunak campaign. And if it is more about immigration than I think would be sensible, I think that is extraordinarily difficult in Scotland because the message is simply not as relevant as it is elsewhere. just want to add one point to what Andy says there. I think it's a good thing. If you're Douglas Ross in the Scottish Tories, I think it's a good thing that um, he doesn't run a Scottish Tory uh, election um, campaign at uh, uh, the next uh, election, the general election, because they're going to get hammered. Uh, they're going to get absolutely... Not in, not, in Scotland, might not, agree. not in Scotland. And that's my point, but that's my okay, point. Right. Um, they're going to get wiped out across the UK, except in Scotland, I suspect, where they probably will hold on to what they've got. And a good day, they might take Gordon in the northeast of Scotland. They might take one of the Angus seats. Who knows? just depending on how tactical voting takes effect. Um, but let's suggest that they hold on to what they've got. Uh, a Tory party in England is going to be at war with itself. You mentioned the factions earlier on, the different 
factions that exist already. God knows what's going to happen post-election. Surely there's an opportunity for, for, for Douglas to say, OK, right, well, I've actually done all right. I've held on to what I've got and use that kind of platform of credibility and consistency that won't be there south of the board and say, right, I've got a bit of a shopping list for my new Tory party leader, presumably if Rishi goes. And there is an opportunity to chart a bit more independence. And I suppose my point to you, Douglas, um, is will you seize that opportunity? Because I just can't help but feel that the Conservatives in Scotland have got a ceiling and the brand problem, a a, a reputational problem. And you might have a window of opportunity post-election if the result is what we expect to say, right, I'm going to chart a slightly different course here. And you'll have more credibility to do so because the party down south will be so weakened. Yeah, and, and we already do that. Maybe it doesn't get the coverage and maybe we don't promote it enough. But going back to the 2017 general election, we had different policies in Scotland on reserved issues from Theresa May. Um, you know, there were some very difficult issues that she was putting to the electorate in England that Ruth said that wasn't appropriate for us in Scotland and we campaigned differently. Uh, and our result, uh, and I would make that analogy, you know, when we went backwards in England in 2017, we made significant gains in Scotland. So I think there's opportunities to do that. But there's always opportunities, I think, to, to flex our muscle. And I'm not shy of doing that. I think when you're in government, a lot of that uh, resource goes into stopping things rather than getting things done. In opposition, then there's more opportunity to, to get things done and put things on the, the UK party reader. But we also have uh, you know, quite good uh, autonomy from the, the UK party in terms of our party director up in Scotland. You know, he's separate from the, the rest of the, the UK party. We run a different campaign, different leaflets, different material. We've got a separate party chairman with Craig Hoy. So there's a lot of differences that maybe, um, you know, are not t- tripping off the people's tongues, but it does give, give us an opportunity to to um, plough a different furrow. Just, I want to follow up one question then, Douglas. So I agree with you. There isn't enough coverage for that. There is. If you could pick one issue that you'd want to go to... to uh, battle with your, your your UK counterparts ahead of the election, what would it be? Well, I think it's more investment. If you know, if we're looking at the Conservatives continuing in government, it's more investment in Scotland. We know that the SNP don't like that because they think they should be the only ones that are investing in Scotland. I'm very much, and Rishi is, uh, and so is Alistair Jack, of the belief Scotland has two governments, and both governments should be investing in Scotland. I think we've seen significant benefits from the free ports, the growth deals, levelling up funds, uh, and I want to see more of that. And I think that shows people that, look, you might be disappointed your Scottish government haven't delivered this project, but here's the UK government uh, are coming in to do something about it. I got got a lot of coverage for getting some money for Coddock Bridge in, in Burnley. Um, and, and that, you know, for that, the people in that area that need that investment, they weren't getting it from the Scottish government. The Chancellor announced it at the budget earlier this year. That's, that's the type of thing that I think we can do more of and I'd like to see more of. I, I agree with a lot of what Douglas has said. And it is, the, the Scottish Tory party is um, a significantly enough different party now than the one uh, that existed when I tried to help Murdo Fraser get rid of it and start a new one. I, I haven't changed my thesis. I still think ultimately the only way to get into government in Scotland is to not do it through the Tory. I mean, the centre-right can't get into government through the Tory party, but that's a different story. So I haven't changed my thesis on that. But the party, it has changed. The party has become more devolved. And I also think it's important that people understand that this is not a Douglas Ross willpower issue. Douglas resigned from the UK government in the past in protest to Dominic Cummings uh, remaining in his job after Barnard Castle. I think I'm right in saying that was the reason for it. Um, so it's not 
it's this is not Douglas Ross won't stand up to London. That has happened, and I think it does happen. I just think that in a UK election, doesn't matter whether it's Douglas Ross or Ruth Davidson or David McCletchie or anybody, I think it's very, very hard to create a distinct message in a UK election. Now, I don't think it'll matter that much in Scotland, because as Jeff says, the Tories will, I'm pretty certain, hold on to all the seats they've got, largely because they're SNP marginals. And the SNP are not going to take back these marginals from the Tories. But I do think that in terms of the tone of the campaign, I don't think that the viewers, the listeners, the ordinary person, I don't think, even if a difference exists, I don't think they'll see it. Hey, I'm Ryan Reynolds. At Mint Mobile, we like to do the opposite of what Big Wireless does. They charge you a lot, we charge you a little. So naturally, when they announced they'd be raising their prices due to inflation, we decided to deflate our prices due to not hating you. That's right. We're cutting the price of Mint Unlimited from $30 a month to just $15 a month. Give it a try at mintmobile.com slash switch. $45 up front for three months plus taxes and fees. Promote for new customers for limited time. Unlimited more than 40 gigabytes per month slows. Full terms at mintmobile.com. I'm Sandra, and I'm just the professional your small business was looking for. But you didn't hire me because you didn't use LinkedIn jobs. LinkedIn has professionals you can't find anywhere else, including those who aren't actively looking for a new job, but might be open to the perfect role, like me. In a given month, over 70% of LinkedIn users don't visit other leading job sites. So if you're not looking on LinkedIn, you'll miss out on great candidates like Sandra. Start hiring professionals like a professional. Post your free job on linkedin.com slash people today. Can I just ask a question, Douglas? What what do you think, you know, right now, the election, what 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 are you forecasting? If you were to say, right, we've got our, our eyes on a few seats, you know, where do you think you'll sit post-election in Scotland in terms of seats for the Tories? This was in big red light uh, writing in my briefing. Do not answer that question. We'll, we'll, we'll cut it out. Losses. It's okay. <laughs> just, I'm sure you will. Just answer it and we'll edit I'm it sure out. You I will. promise we'll edit it. Exactly. Exactly. That's a bad briefing. <laughs> whoever's, whoever's briefed that, exactly. you've got a word with them. <laughs> so I, have, I am on record as having, saying, having said that I think we will hold on to what we've got and I think we will make gains. I think after the next election, um, I think there will be more Scottish Conservative MPs than there are at the moment. Uh, and I'm working hard to make sure there's as many of those as possible. Interesting. Yeah, I kept a straight face. I thought I might, I might get a, a sneaky answer out there. That's good. Well, is, there, is, 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 Jeff, is, Jeff, is Jeff accurate in his portrayal of where the gain opportunities are, as far as you're concerned, Douglas? Well, I thought he was underplaying Gordon a wee bit, because it's one that has been forecasting a, a lot of the uh, uh, polls at the moment. Harriet Cross is a great candidate up there. Um, I think you've got to look uh, further uh, south as well. You know, Ayrshire, you know, we, we previously held that seat mm. under Bill Grant. You've got East Rain that we held under Paul Masterton that Sandish Gulhani standing in. So, uh, you know, we are going to put up a very good fight, um, and I think we will make gains at the election. I'm really interested in this in this point because... In 2021, you know, we actually, for the first time in a long time, saw some quite obvious and strong tactical voting. Um, and I, you just wonder in 
the areas in which the Conservatives are the SNP's principal opponent, where the increase in Labour vote will go, um, if you know what I mean, elsewhere in the country, will that translate to, oh, well, I'll back the Tories because um, I was going to back Labour. But, you know, the, the reason that's so fascinating to me is because we've actually seen a lot of disaffected SNP voters and by-elections go to the Labour. So would that? how does that translate to going to the Tories? And this is why I think it's so fascinating. Uh, and it's also why I think that the Conservatives will stand a decent, decent chance of, of holding on to what they've got and where it is an SNP-Tory uh, struggle. I always go back to my, my own example. 2017, when I was elected MP for Murray, I'd stood there 2010, 2015, Angus Robertson had significant majorities. I remember knocking on doors, hoping that people we'd previously canvassed as SNP would be saying, we're staying at home this time. And they said, no, we're, we're going to vote Conservative because they just wanted to send a message to the SNP. Whether that was you know, people in my coastal communities who were SNP supporters who wanted out of Europe, now we're getting SNP supporters who are just a bit fed up with their government who have been in for 16 years and are looking for the best vehicle uh, to, to send a message to Hamza Youssef and the SNP and in a lot of seats up and down the country. That is the Scottish Conservatives. And I, I, the other point you make, Jeff, is I think we have one of the most sophisticated electorate uh, in Scotland because they have done tactical voting. They can vote for Alexander Burnett in his constituency but go back to their normal party on the regional list because Lib Dem supporters there know that they previously had uh, a Lib Dem MSP but Alex Burnett had been elected in 2016, a very good local constituency MSP, uh, and they backed him again in 2021 because he was the best vehicle to keep the SNP out. But you, but you do have to accept that there's a massive scunner factor with the Tories as well. Yeah, I mean, but- yes, I accept that the, 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 the SNP are facing that same charge, and I, and I hold my hands up to that, but there's a massive scunner factor with the Tories. There, there's a, a lot of folk are scunnered with the SNP and in particular uh, the Greens. Uh, and I think we see that from within the SNP, but particularly with voters in, for example, these rural seats in the northeast and the south of Scotland uh, and with some of the more urban seats that we're focusing on in the central belt. I think as well that, I mean, the Greens is an important point there because uh, the, the Tory map, there might be slightly more blue on it. Um, this time next year than there is just now but the blue will be roughly in the same place right? it's along the bottom and it's up on the right hand side by the coasts uh, and those are the places that are most affected by the current very urbanist is urbanist a word? Let's go with it anyway. Um, it is now uh, SNP Green government. So, I mean, I think there, there is that. I'll tell you what is interesting, though, in terms of numbers, because when you start to talk about... So the Tories have got 10. Eh, sorry, Tories have got six. Lib Dem's got four. So that's 10. None of those 10 are likely to be lost. If you add maybe another one each, that's 12. That brings it down to 45 seats for the SNP and Labour, probably, to fight over. Now, Hamza Yusuf's... Uh, SNP conference ambition where he says you'll then negotiate independence is 29 seats so if he wins 29 of that 45 that leaves 16 for Labour and most polling would indicate at the moment that Labour will get more than 16 so actually the number of seats that the, the, the Tories and the Lib Dems hold and gain has a very very significant as much yeah. so as Labour has a very significant uh, a consequence in terms of whether Hamza Youssef meets that stated aim of 29 seats to then negotiate independence. It's a very consequential election in that respect, I think. 
And I think that's where there will be so much interest in Scotland. You know, it's an area where there's a lot of different stories are going to come out of the, the general election. And I think there'll be a lot more interest than there has been for some time. Just on your, whether it's a new word or not, about urban dominating Scottish politics, that that is one of the issues that, that frustrates me quite a lot. Um, I'm very proud to say that I'm the only party leader that doesn't represent a constituency in the central belt of Scotland, the only party leader that doesn't represent a constituency in either Glasgow or Edinburgh. And I just think, you know, when Scotland Act went through in 1998 and the Parliament was established in 1999, it was to take decisions closer to people here in Scotland. But actually, if you live up in Murray or the Highlands or the North East or the South of Scotland, people are feeling as detached from, from the Scottish Parliament and our politics here in the Scottish Government as they ever felt from Westminster. And I think something... There is a message there about, you know, why do the majority of our party leaders come from that strip in the central belt of Scotland? Mm. Douglas, I want to turn to some questions that our um, listeners have been sending in for you um, in anticipation of your appearance today. Some of these will probably be quite quick answers. That's completely fine. Uh, Lee asks a couple of questions. Uh, Will the Scottish Tories ever split from the Westminster ones and provide a centre-right option for Scotland? That's a great idea, Lee. That's a great idea, Lee. (laughs) (laughs) Andy's using pseudonyms to put in questions to this podcast, obviously. It was 12 years ago, Andy. Let it go. So um, there there is a centre-right option uh, here in Scotland. And I just think, you know, sometimes uh, people have written us off and said, you know, we wouldn't do very well. And I go back to the 21 election, my first uh, campaign as leader. Um, People assumed Nicola Sturgeon was going to get... Uh, a majority. She assumed, people assumed that the Tories were going to go back. Our vote went up. We held 31 seats and we're still the main opposition party here in Scotland. Mm. Uh, and I think we're doing a lot of good work here in Holyrood with our Scottish MPs at Westminster and our councillors up and down the country as well. Uh, this... Oh, go on, just sorry. Just very go quickly on, on that. Very, very quickly, if I may, just coming in mm-hmm. from that column, because I hate to do this and it's so, you know, against my inner self. But well, you don't have to. Yeah. You don't have to. Yeah, I'm going to pay... <laughs> I pay, pay, pay tribute to Andy uh, Andy McKeever and his previous ambition 12 years ago to kind of separate the two parties. I mean, Douglas, don't you accept that there is a ceiling, though? You know, we're sitting there talking about holding on to your own right now. We understand the context challenging with the uh, incumbent UK government. But even under Ruth Davidson, you never really um, got to the position of uh, challenging to be in government. Don't you accept there needs to be quite a momentous shift from the Scottish Tories if you ever want to have uh, aspirations of seizing power at Hollywood? Well, I think if you go back to Andy's time when he was working for the party, people would have said the ceiling was 15 or 16 MSPs. It would have said one MP at Westminster was the ceiling. We went up to 13 MPs at Westminster. We've gone up to 31 and stayed at 31 at Holyrood. So when people say there's a ceiling, we keep breaking through that and increasing. And I'm never going to lose my enthusiasm to have more Scottish Conservative representatives right across the country. So is that, but that, with that in mind, with that maths, Douglas, that means that it's going to take, what, like 50 years? So, you know, is that, is that what you see your work is doing? <laughs> so I think 31 MSPs is more than the SNP had in the election before they became the minority government. Okay. Jeff will correct me on that. Uh, they went from less than 31 in opposition to government. Okay. Yeah, uh, they had more in two thousand in the first election, yes, in yeah. 99. But yes, you're yes. right. Yep, yep, yep. Uh, good answer. Right, a couple of other uh, tweets then. Um, <laughs> this one's from Tony, which is a slight jibe, so I apologise for that. But Tony asks, do you think the Scottish Tories will ever be led by someone with a constituency seat? 
Uh, well, I do have a constituency seat, just not in this parliament, and I will be fighting at the next Scottish election to have a constituency seat and be the MSP for Murray. Uh, I decided when I became leader um, that we'd already selected an excellent candidate, Tim Eagle, uh, and I would seek election through the regional list. But I often find that people who criticise me for, for just being a list MSP forget, of course, that Nicola Sturgeon was first selected as a list uh, MSP, and I'm sure people on that uh, side mm. of politics think she did particularly well as a, a list MSP and went on to be constituency MSP and first minister. I don't mean to be I don't mean to be a statue yeah. here, but am I not right? I think David McClitchie won Pentlands in two thousand and three, and I think Ruth won central in 2016 yeah, yeah. so i'm not i I, yeah. I think i would as the politicians yeah. would say i think i would reject the premise of that question yes i wonder to someone i hate the i i hate this yeah. argument i really do yeah. that's the, the, yeah. the system exactly. that we have yeah. Yeah. Uh, we, yeah. we have lists and and consistency yeah. msps you play the yeah. ball where it lies i've seen politicians of all parties criticize yeah. other ones for just being a a list msp i've got yeah. no it's, a, kind of, it's a, like a false hierarchy yeah. isn't it anyway. in that regard and last one from twitter is from yasmin uh, which quite i think is quite interesting how does rishi sunak as a leader of the conservatives uh, over scotland differ to boris johnson yasmin says i hope rishi sunak at least knows douglas's name uh, he does, uh, and he knows Chloe Smith's name because he signed her card. We all know Chloe Smith's name. That's her third name. Come on, Chloe. <laughs> I should say there were also five runners up that I'll have to get a, a name check at some point. Um, but um, So what I would say is Rishi, and we saw that particularly in, in the change from Liz Truss. Liz Truss said she wasn't going to speak to Nicola Sturgeon. Rishi immediately uh, reached out to her. They met up in Inverness. Uh, before the um, uh, official announcement for the, the Green Freeport up at um, Cromarty. So I, I think he immediately tried to show he wants a, a better relationship um, between the UK government and the Scottish government. And it goes back to what I was saying earlier about the work he's doing as Prime Minister, Alistair Dax doing as Secretary of State. It's just trying to make sure, and this is something I do think comes up in the doorsteps, people just want both the governments to work work together. They understand on constitutional issues and on, on other policies will be differences, but at times they can and should work together. And Rishi's very keen on that. Mm. Uh, very interesting. Right, uh, we've got a few other things we want to tick off before the end of the podcast, Douglas. It's great to be speaking with you. Um, I want to ask you about David Cameron, who is the Foreign Secretary, Lord Cameron indeed, uh, who has written to the Scottish Constitution Secretary, Angus Robertson, threatening to withdraw cooperation with Scottish ministers uh, after Hamza Yusuf met with the Turkish president. Um, is David Cameron being a bit petty and childish here? No, that was Hamza Yusuf's response, and, and that was probably predictable. But, you know, there was a, a letter sent by the previous Foreign Secretary, James Cleverly, that just outlined some of the things uh, we should expect. And when UK government ministers go abroad, there's always a, a Foreign Office official with them. When I went abroad with Pete Wishart, with uh, other members of the Scottish Fair Select Committee, to Tartan Week in New York as part of our inquiry uh, on Scotland's place internationally, we had Foreign Office officials with us in all our meetings. It's, it's standard practice and protocol, uh, and I think it is right that that's re-emphasised to make sure that absolutely Scotland and our ministers from the Scottish Government are out there promoting Scotland, doing deals on trade with uh, businesses uh, here in Scotland, but on foreign policy, it's right that there's a, a united policy from the UK government with this area that's reserved to the UK Parliament. Well, <clears throat> you know, this story uh, brought back memories for me. I remember in um, 2008 or nine, I can't be clear which one, 
uh, I went with the First Minister to uh, Washington, D.C., and we'd struck up really good relations with a senator um, whose name escapes me. This is really good for the purpose of this story. <laughs> um, I, think he's no long, I think he's no longer with us right now. Um, and he'd arranged for us to meet Hillary Clinton, uh, who was Secretary of State at the time. And it was a big coup. It was a diplomatic coup at the time, you know, and, and the S&P had only been in minority government for, you know, a year or so at this point, And all of a sudden we're meeting Hillary Clinton at the White House. And it caused a huge amount of consternation with the uh, UK government, which was a Labour government at the time. So this this issue isn't, you know, specifically about the Conservatives. It has to be said that it has been these concerns before. But I have to say, Douglas, I thought, you know, if you take the SNP week last week, two uh, failed legal cases, um, the PISA figures, which we discussed last week on the podcast, and then, of course, another story about the ongoing police investigation in the SNP. It was a hellish, hellish week for the SNP, I think, by any measure. And then in comes David Cameron with this letter saying, you know, you can't talk to these people, you know, even if you're at a conference and they're there. And I just thought, what a gift if you're in the SNP. Because I think most people in Scotland go, who cares? You know, if guys go to meet folk, who cares? I get all the reasons and I get the protocols that are in place. But I'm, I don't get why you'd, as David Cameron or his press team, think that it was a good idea to publicise it so uh, in that way. I thought that actually gave the SNP a bit of a... A life jacket in a storm, you know, there was a lifeboat in a storm. I just thought it was um, bad politics. I think the timing was just it happened uh, and he wrote to Angus. I'm not sure how it got into the public domain. You say uh, David Cameron and his press team, I think he sent a letter to the Scottish government and then it suddenly <laughs> became public knowledge. Um, but ultimately, you know, I, I do think that protocol exists for a reason and, and it benefits uh, the Scottish government and anyone going abroad to have that consular support. And I think when uh, it's abused, and obviously Alistair Jack at our committee on Monday gave further examples, um, you know, if there is a trend, and James Cleverley's letter followed um, the former First Minister meeting the Icelandic Prime Minister, you know, I think it's right that, you know, everyone is reminded of the protocols involved. I mean, there's, there are a couple of aspects to this, I think. I would, I think the Scotland office of Alistair Jack is easily the best Scotland office since the Tories came to power. Um, or I should say the best Secretary of State for Scotland since the, since the Tories came to power for sure. Uh, and, and a very good set of advisors that Alistair Jack has with them as well, I have to say. They do some very, very clever things that previous UK governments have not done uh, that upset the Scottish government in subtle ways but please people on the ground, like levelling up. Classic example. Levelling up is a really, really strong UK government policy. The Scottish government hate it because often it is in devolved areas. But people on the ground don't care who they get their stuff from. They just want the stuff. And if they're getting it from UK government, that is incrementally and slowly raising the, you know, it's, it's raising the appeal of the union. It's what it is doing incrementally and slowly. That is the best of the UK government and the Scotland office. Sometimes I do think that the um, desire for a short anti-nationalist headline does take over sometimes. And the truth is a story like 
uh, the David Cameron ones from the other day appeals much more to people who are already voting Tory than it does to people who are not. Whereas levelling up appeals potentially to people who could think about voting Tory but aren't at the moment. I would just make that distinction. Mm. Really interesting, right? We've got a couple of minutes left. Jeff, you mentioned we discussed education on the podcast last week. And Douglas, I'm quite keen to get a thought or two from you on education, because I think, you know, some of our listeners have been asking, you know, what are conservative policies, Scottish conservative policies on these sorts of issues? Education clearly um, so crucial in public life and in policy making. Uh, we discussed the, the PISA results at length last week. We kind of analysed them. So just, just to get a couple of sort of quick thoughts from you. Um, where where is education broken in Scotland? Where does the intervention need to come to fix it, to get standards up? Well, I think it's at all levels, but I, I think I shared Andy's disappointment last week at the PISA results. When the Scottish Government tried to portray that as, as steady as she goes, everything's fine. Uh, and I was just thinking about this this morning. You know, we had that uh, press release from them on, on the Tuesday. Jenny Gilruth was still trying to say things weren't too bad on Wednesday. And by Thursday, Hamza Youssef, uh, when I was questioning the FNQs, had to say uh, they were poor. Uh, so I think we've just got to be honest uh, where there are failings, uh, where there are considerable issues. Uh, but for me... School is crucially important. I've got two wee boys, four and two. Uh, my oldest, Alistair, starts uh, primary school next year. So I've got a personal um, interest here that I want his schooling to be as good as the schooling I got in Murray. But then I think we've got to look going forward. And I was having a discussion last week um, uh, about skills and what we do with apprenticeships, for example. Uh, I still think we focus a lot on school, primary and secondary education. And then we've got this issue where, and I made this example, I'm a twin. So my twin sister left Forest Academy at the same time as me. She went to university to study accountancy and I went to college to study agriculture. And there's this view that she must be better. She is, I'll say that just to make sure I get my <laughs> Christmas present from her. But she's done better because she went to university than me going to agricultural college. And I just don't think we've done enough to, to dispel that myth. And on apprenticeships, I've been speaking about this since I became leader. I don't know why we still have this scheme, but it's a top-down approach from government telling businesses what they should have and how the apprenticeship levy should be spent rather than businesses and sectors saying, we put all this money into the levy and this is what we want out of it in return. And I think we do a lot better with apprenticeships if it was more sector-led rather than government-led. So I, th I think to answer your question, Callum, it's right across the board. Yeah, and that's interesting because those, you know, those are very specific examples as well. Um, Andy, do you want to come in on that? Yeah, I mean, I, I actually, I was uh, at an event that Douglas was speaking at, a Prosper event last week in Glasgow, where he was talking about these spilt, uh, skills. And uh, in fact, the audience was very varied in that event that Douglas spoke at last week. You know, everything from colleges to corporates, but everybody pretty much agreed very well with what he was saying. Must have been a nice audience for you, Douglas, in fairness, that one. Um, so but they're the, not always like that. No, they're not always like that, no. <laughs> uh, but the PISA results actually like came this out... this morning. Uh, well, that's, a, that's a pretty nice audience. This is a pretty nice audience. This is all right. Um, the PISA results actually always. came out when... Uh, oh, of course. The PISA results came out when Douglas was speaking, actually, last week. Um, and I, I said plenty on last week's podcast about it, so I'll not repeat anything mm. I said then. All I will say is that if you want to try to extract the positives from PISA last week, as we must try to do, I think the biggest positive of it is that there are now very few people who don't think there's a problem. 
Um, people yeah. might disagree as to what that problem is. I've got my own views, which I've, I've said in the podcast last week, and I wrote my Herald article last Friday on it as well. But there's the I plug. think if we there's try the to extract... A, there's a plug. There's a plug. Every Friday. Um, <laughs> uh, if we try to extract the positives, I think the positive is that we know we need to do something about this right now because um, this is, you know, forget everything else that we talk about, the absolute single biggest inhibitor to Scotland's future economic and social success is the collapse of our school education and it has to get fixed immediately. Just one quick thing there, if I can. So when I was elected here in 21, as leader, you know, I'm doing uh, appointments to my team. And we then have a dehont system that allows you to select which committees are chaired by your party. So the SNP is the biggest party, got to pick the first ones, like I think it was uh, economy or finance, etc. Our first choice, and it was my first choice, was education. Because I think it is such a crucial issue. I want to make sure our education committee uh, is looking uh, at all of the issues affecting young people and their families across Scotland. Stephen Kerr was the first chair. We've now got Sue Webber. And it's a point that no one will, will be particularly interested in. But for me, it was really important that on a committee looking at education in Scotland and scrutinising the government, and there's why it's so important, is we ones like that, um, I decided to have a Conservative chair of that committee. Just, just, I'm sorry, Douglas. I couldn't resist. I've ne- this is this is Elf, Elf, Elf Lucas. Just, very good, Lucas. Well done. For, uh, just for the sake of benefit of <laughs> listeners, a very confused looking <laughs> Lucas has just appeared in an elf outfit, uh, jingling in an elf, in an elf costume, yeah. jingling as Jeff yeah. shows him proudly. And I expect mum and dad. I expect mum and dad have matching costumes. Absolutely. Yeah, that's, I'm just about to get. Good. I'm just about to get fitted in. Um, can, can, I, can I make one serious point about something yeah. that I thought Douglas touched on, which I think is so so important? So um, you mentioned your own experience about agricultural college, and this is something that I think has to be looked at so closely as we enter what I think is going to be a new phase for our economy as we attempt to uh, um, have a green industrialisation. I want to give you one stat. To provide an, an illustration of the scale of the opportunity, 11,400 new moorings will be required to deliver the UK market demand associated with the Scotland and Intog developments. That's the offshore wind developments that we know we have an abundance of. They're going to require welders. They're going to require fabricators. They're going to uh, require people at the coalface of making these things. We have to have an education system that supports that and doesn't stigmatise people that feel that they have to go to university. There has to be a much more comprehensive ease of approach to this so I, I couldn't agree more with that particular point. And just to, to follow up on that, um, can, just really quick uh, for example the boiler replacement programme, you know a government policy to try and get our emissions down my colleague Brian Whittle keeps asking the government here in Scotland, how many engineers will you need to do this across the country and you don't have them now, you're not getting them going into college or university at the moment so it has a, an impact with Scotland it has an impact with all the different trades that we need uh, to help the economy, to help the country going forward as well mm. Is curriculum for excellence fit for purpose with all of that in mind? Uh, no, uh, and when Oliver Mundell was leading for education on us, he did a, a lot of work on that. And I announced at our party conference, I think it was maybe two years ago, that, that we would look to, to change that um, because it doesn't uh, prioritise the, the right areas. I think we saw some movement yesterday from Jenny Galruth. She, she accepted, you know, there's more areas uh, we need to, to prioritise in curriculum for excellence. 
obviously Hamza Youssef uh, threw back at me last week, well, the Tories supported Curriculum for Excellence. Well, we did. Um, but so did other people who said it's the implementation that's been the problem. And, um, uh, you know, there, there is significant issues with that implementation. And during that implementation just time to stage... Well, we believe so. We believe so. Maybe Jeff disagrees. We believe so um, because during that period of Curriculum for Excellence, our international reputation has dropped in all of the variables. I I was just going to say quickly, you know, you say Bennett, look, we are where we are right now. I think what there is cross-party agreement is is that it has to change and change for the better. And I've just given one example about the, the pace of change that's going to be happening in an economy, and we need to get a system that provides the skills so that those opportunities can be done as much as possible, because we want to attract talent as well uh, to our country, but done by people that want to stay in Scotland and be at the forefront of these new technologies. And so whatever happens, I do think we need change. It's just a question of whether that start again change, which I wouldn't advocate, or whether um, mm. uh, you do bin it, as you put it. Well, just... I think it's important just to have a final, final, final point on this. Um, it is partly about curriculum, yes, it is, but it is more about culture. Um, and at the moment, the educational establishment has uh, injected a culture of mediocrity and almost an anti-excellence culture in our schools. It's far more about that culture than it is about curriculum, although I do think curriculum has a pretty big part to play in that too. Mm. Good. Uh, right. I feel like actually I've made a mistake at the start of the podcast. Jeff, I should have got you to declare something of an interest because you and Douglas were hanging out at the football at the weekend, were you not? We were. And, and I want to place on record <clears throat> the situation that was uh, Douglas was running the line at the Aberdeen Hibs game. Aberdeen got beaten 2-0, uh, despite dominating, in my opinion. Um, and uh, there were some chants from the Aberdeen fans, of which I was one, towards... Douglas, and I just want to, to place on record that I was not one of those people chanting anything nefarious. Um, but I do, I do have a, one kind of question. I was going to, you know, I really keep ask. You do get a fair bit of abuse, uh, Douglas, when you're at these games, and you take it pretty well. And all, and all credit to you. But is there never any point where you just want to turn around the crowd and just go right up yours? I just don't know how you hold your composure. I, well. The way I hold it is because I know there's always a camera on you, uh, and both in politics and in refereeing, just going with your gut reaction can sometimes get you in a lot of trouble. Um, I, I mean, you see the Aberdeen fans were shouting at me. I mean, if, in fairness, it was pretty unanimous around all the spectators in the road that day uh, that I got a lot of hassle. And uh, quite often, referees now say it's great being on a game with you because you get more hassle than me as the referee in the middle. Um, but, I mean, I could, I could do a whole other podcast just on refereeing stories. It's something uh, that I love, uh, I've done for a long time now. Interestingly, my political opponents, particularly in Murray, have always tried to paint it as an issue. You know, he's not concentrated on the job and, you know, it's a bad thing that he's a referee. Mm-hmm. Uh, and there will be people that have that view. I've always found when I'm knocking on doors, uh, quite often it's the first thing people ask me about. Where's your game this weekend? What do you think mm-hmm. of that decision? And then they got onto politics. And secondly, there's some people in Murray that just actually think it's quite good that the guy that used to referee the school games at Forest Academy was doing Champions League matches in in the the new camp and things like that. So it's often been portrayed as my Achilles heel, uh, but it's something that that I love. Um, I was out injured for, for quite a long time and... At some stage, I wasn't sure if I'd get back into it or not. And um, my wife uh, 
was encouraging me to get back into it. I says, well, why? She says, you're so grumpy at a weekend. You know, you're, you're clearly missing football. And a bit like spectators, you know, in the closed season during the summer, you, you miss your football. And it's the same for referees as well. So she was as keen as anyone to, to get me back into it. <laughs> Yeah, that is. Exactly. Douglas, thank you well, very can much. I, no, no, one he, question. No, 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 Callum, sorry, oh, he's not getting away no. with this. One go. question. No, no, Douglas, no, are you are you running the line at all on Sunday at the cup final? And who do you expect to win that cup final? And there's only one <laughs> answer, I should say. Well, there is there is only one answer, and the winner of the cup final will be Don Robertson and his team of match officials, because Don is <laughs> a wrong answer. Wrong answer. It, it's, it's a perfect answer, um, and Don and his officials <laughs> will will do a great job. And I've done uh, that game before. My first League Cup final was actually Aberdeen Inverness played oh, yeah. at uh, Celtic, Celtic Park, Park. and uh, it was just after it was just it was the weekend of Scottish Conservative Conference, and I got permission to leave early because I was heading to Glasgow to, to run the line at that cup final. So I'm very fortunate to have been involved in, in many of these top games. That was my first major cup final. Uh, I've done two Scottish cup finals uh, and it, it's always a, a great atmosphere. And I feel for the, the losing team because you go there with great hopes and expectations and sadly there can be only one winner, but I'm pretty sure on mm. Sunday it'll be done. It's like an election, Douglas. It's like an election. Yeah. <laughs> let, let me see. I'll have no sympathy for Rangers fans when they're drowning their sorrows on Sunday evening. <laughs> no comment. <laughs> That's, a That's a classic. <laughs> Jeff Aberdeen's party political broadcast on behalf of Aberdeen Football Club ends here. Douglas, thank you very much. Uh, great yeah, to have you on the podcast. Thank you for your time. Thank you. I enjoyed it. Cheers.